Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. A few months after Winston Churchill took office as prime minister, the German military began an eight-month-long bombing campaign on the United Kingdom, which became known as the Blitz. The bombing, which lasted for 57 consecutive days and nights over London, killed 45,000 Britons. What was life like for the people who experienced the Blitz? My guest today zoomed in on this question by looking at the lives of Winston Churchill and his inner circle during this precarious year of the war. His name is Eric Larson, and in his latest book, The Splendid and the Vile, he shows readers how the Blitz could be absolutely terrifying, unexpectedly normal, and strangely beautiful at the same time, and does so by profiling how Churchill, as well as his family members and advisors, handled both the unexpected horrors of war and the predictable pickles of interpersonal drama. We begin our conversation discussing the extent of the Blitz, and then spend the rest of our conversation discussing key members and what Churchill called his sacred circle. We learn how Churchill's wife, Clementine, supported her husband during the Blitz, how his son, Randolph, created trouble with his gambling and affairs, how his teenage daughter, Mary, managed to keep doing typically adolescent activities, even while bombs fell on London, and how his advisors contributed to his leadership. These characters offer a great lesson in how life goes on, even in the midst of a crisis, and how one can be fearless, even in the face of a threat. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is Larson. All right, Eric Larson, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. So you got a new book out, The Splendid and the Vile. Yes, indeed. A saga of Churchill, family, and defiance during the Blitz. So there's been a lot of biographies written about Churchill. I think he's like (laughs) one of the most written about human beings from the 20th century. What were you aiming to accomplish by focusing on the Blitz? Well, you know, the the thing that drew me to the story is not so much Churchill, not so much the Blitz, not so much World World War II, but... What happened was that I had been living in Seattle, and my wife and I moved to Manhattan. And when we moved to Manhattan, I had this epiphany about the nature of 9-11, right? In Seattle, you know, like millions of people around the world, we, we watched the Twin Towers collapse in real time. But it was a very different thing when I got to New York. I realized these people had seen the smoke, smelled it, you know, heard sirens, the whole deal. But above all, they had that sense of violation of their personal city, of their home city. And I started thinking, how on earth, if this 9-11 threw us for such a loop, and the city in particular, how did people survive the bombing of London when it was 57 consecutive nights of bombs and then six more months of intensifying raids at somewhat longer intervals, but still you know, very intense bombing attacks? How do you survive that? I started thinking, well, I could get at that by talking about maybe writing a book about a typical London family. And then I thought, wait a minute, why not the quintessential London family, Churchill and his family? You know, his, 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 his you know, youngest daughter, youngest living daughter, Mary, his son-in-law, Randolph, and so forth. And they're, you know, his own advisors. Take a look at exactly how they got through that year, which is what makes this very different than other things that have been done thus far. And that's one of the things you mentioned in your source, uh, the source section of your book, is that you purposely went to look for those frivolous stories that often get thrown out, or maybe just mentioned in passing in other Churchill biographies. And I'm glad you did that, because I I remember reading those things, those little stories in other biographies, and I I always thought, I wish they would go, there's more there, and I want them to go there. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's not not so much that I look for the the frivolous stories, but that I look for, I, I like to think of it more as context is everything, right? And you know, there tends to be with Churchill a tendency toward hagiography, you know, making him seem like he alone won World War II. When, of course, that's, that's not at all the case. And, and 
I wanted to look at just how he went about his days during this period and how his advisors and family did. And, and necessarily in terms of context, that means getting into some of the, some of the little stories that, you know, like we all have. I mean, even in the midst of the crisis of 9-11, we still had to take our kids to school and, you know, we had all, all that. And so Churchill was, was no different. So I did really try to hunt for those things that would sort of shed light on what life was really like day by day. So before we get into Churchill and his inner circle during the Blitz, let's talk about the Blitz itself. Yeah. Because one of the things that I think you did a really good job with this book is conveying how terrifying, how catastrophic the Blitz was, but also how weirdly normal it became. (laughs) So let's give listeners a bird's eye view of the the Blitz. You mentioned 56 nights. 57 consecutive nights of bombing after, well, so again, context. So one of the things that actually I was, I was a little bit surprised at in my own research, I mean, I, I knew a little bit about the Blitz and the bombing and, and the Battle of Britain and so forth. What I didn't realize was there was this, this long, slow ramp up, essentially from when Churchill became prime minister to the point when the first bombers attacked, made their first deliberate attack on London. And it was this kind of slow and I think fairly suspenseful accretion of, you know, Hitler doing one thing, Churchill being defiant, one thing leading to another. And only then did the bombers come to London on September 7th, 1940. Until then, Hitler explicitly forbade the Luftwaffe from making any attacks on central London. I mean, deliberate attacks on central London. There had been an accidental attack on August 24th. So there was this long, slow run-up, which I found very, very interesting and very sort of spooky, actually. But then comes the Blitz, September 7th, 1940. The first bombers arrive that afternoon at tea time. It's a beautiful day, warm in the 90s. People are, you know, the stores are full in Piccadilly, you know, and suddenly these bombers arrive and start dropping incendiary bombs and high explosives on the city of London. It was, it, it was incredibly, incredibly shocking and terrifying. The bombing continued night after night after night for 57 consecutive nights. As this happened, people did begin to adjust in some very interesting ways. And that's part of the story, you know, is how, how they began to adjust. And, and you know, for, for, for example, for Mary Churchill, who is my favorite character in the book, she's 17 at the start of the action. She turns 18. You know, life is still full of parties, hanging out with RAF pilots, dances, there's this annual Queen Charlotte's Ball, which is sort of the debutante ball, which that year was held in an underground ballroom. And it goes on anyway. It goes on anyway. You know, bombs are falling as this ball is underway. That's how, that's, how, that's how people did sort of normalize the day. Yeah, I mean, and I, business kept going on. Yep, yep. And, and it, was just, it was just so interesting to see that, that they, were, they, they managed. Like, what do you think was going on there? Was it Churchill's leadership, his rhetoric, or was it just, that's just human nature? You somehow managed to adjust to even crazy craziness? Yeah, well, you know, I think it's a mix of all things. I mean, 57 consecutive nights of bombing. I mean, what are you going to do, stay at a high, high state of terror for 57 straight nights? I mean, you know, you, you, people, people brought their own abilities to, to, to adjust to the program. But it didn't, it didn't hurt that Churchill, I mean, it actually helped, helped immensely that Churchill, as leaders, true leaders should, that Churchill was out there trying to provide solace when he could, trying to show the people at all, all opportunities how, how courageous he was in hopes of transferring some of that courage to them. And I think it all went into the mix where, where people began to, 
to, to normalize their lives. It, it helped also that the, uh, that the Luftwaffe decided that daytime raids were just too costly because the RAF was really pummeling them on daytime raids. Bombers were slow, much slower than the RAF about hurricanes and spitfires. So the Germans abandoned daylight raids, which really helped because then during the day, people led relatively normal lives. They came to work, they, they, they commuted to work, they left, they left early enough to get home before the blackout. They brought their gas masks to work just in case, you know, that kind of thing. So that helped also. If you, have, if you were pretty certain, relatively certain, or you could be relatively certain that during the day the bombers would not come, that kind of helped level out the day. However, the flip side of that was the equal certainty that they would come that night almost well, for sure during that first period. One of the, I mean, one of the things you did, you went to diaries written during this time. And I thought one of the interesting stories you pull out of that, like lovemaking affairs actually picked, picked <laughs> yeah, up yeah, yeah. during the Blitz because people would use the, the, the Blitz as an excuse to like, oh, well, I was gone. I was taking cover. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, you think about that, you know, I mean, bombs are falling and it's, it's, it's terrifying. And, you know, you, you, you got to live your life and what have you got to lose, you know? So, so people were having affairs. It seemed, seemed to be like everybody was having an affair. You know, there was a lot of sex going on. And that was one of the things that I found kind of delightful too in the research. So how many Britons were in, ended up being killed during the Blitz? Okay, so you're taxing my, my uh, always faulty short-term memory, but I believe it, it, by the time the Blitz ended the 1940-41 period, I think the number killed was 47,000. The number seriously injured was like another 50,000. So, Yeah, and as you talked about the destruction, it was you could have you know, one block completely just annihilated. Right. But the block right. over, fine. Well, yeah, yeah, because of the nature of the nature, the inaccurate nature of, of bombing and, and, the, and, the, and the character of, of some weapons. For example, the, the Germans, the Luftwaffe, used what were referred to as parachute mines, which were very large, basically explosive pallets that were dropped by parachute into a, into a neighborhood. If one of those landed in your neighborhood went off, you had no neighborhood. I mean, it would just destroy that, that complete area. Similarly, they, the Germans had a bomb... 4,000-pound bomb, 13 feet long, which they named Satan. And if that landed in your neighborhood, you also lost your neighborhood. But then the reality was that, you know, two blocks away, you could drive down a street that looked like there had not been a war yet. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the title of the book, The Splendid and the yeah. Vile. Yeah. Where did that come from? So Splendid and the Vile comes from a diary entry by uh, a key character in the book, John Colville, who was one of Churchill's private secretaries. He had a number of those, all young men who were very hardworking. And they're really sort of more or less like, almost like assistant prime ministers, really. And John Colville was one of the, the hardest working, one of the most interesting, because he kept a daily diary. He should not have kept that diary. It was a violation of the National Secrets Act. But he kept a daily diary. And one night, he, he writes about this in his diary. One night during a particularly severe raid, he was looking out the window, watching this from a bedroom, as one does, apparently. And so he's watching this raid, and he is struck by the beauty of the bombs and the searchlights and guns firing and so forth. And he, and he writes this beautiful beautiful entry in his diary, which ends with how this was such a, this was a juxtaposition of, of he called it natural splendor and human vileness. 
as soon as I read that, that entry, I thought, yeah, this is going to be my title, The Splendid and the Vile. And it stayed ever since. I mean, I had to fight for it a little bit, but... Right. Now I'm glad you fought. It was such a great title because that, that really does encapsulate war. And sometimes we forget that the Latin word for war, bellum, like it's also bella, beautiful. Ah, it's, okay. That's it's weird. True. Yeah, it's, true. it's weird. Um, well, so let's talk about this inner circle that Churchill used. I mean, he, he actually referred to it as secret circle. It was sort yes. of his... These are the people that buoyed him up during yes. this time. And we'll talk about John Colville here in a bit, but let's talk about the one, the ones closest to him. And his one that played a big role in this book was his wife, Clementine, yes. who was a character. Uh, I mean, I think she uh, doesn't get the attention that she probably deserves. I, I think I said they're all characters in this book. Yeah, they <laughs> um, are. Anyway, but yes. Well, let's talk about Clementine. What, she was a very interesting, compelling, compelling woman. Yeah. I mean, what was her role in the Blitz and during well, this first year? In this, in, in, in this first year, she really did decide what her job was going to be was to support Churchill. That was going to be her, her job. And, you know, she, she sort of threaded through the narrative, not as much as Mary, but she's threaded through the narrative as supporting him. But also she's a very, she's a very independent person. She had her own bedroom and she, she did not care that much, honestly, for, for most of Churchill's friends. And she would prefer some of these nights just not, not to be around, you know, when he had his, his, his parties. But she proved very, very interesting in, in, in this in a couple of ways. For one, there was a point where Churchill, in her view, was starting to become even more inconsiderate than usual. He had a real inconsiderate, rude side, and his employees were starting to, to chafe at this. And, and Clementine writes him this letter where she, she says, you know, you are not as nice as you used to be, and, and, and advises him on how he should be behaving and so forth, which is very good, sort of a nice, nice break on, on him getting completely off the planet with his irascibility and so forth. But there's also a point where she goes and visits all the shelters, not all the shelters, but a number of public shelters, which were a mess. And she just, she just ventures in, Clementine Churchill ventures in and captures Dickensian detail about how awful these places were. And that was, that was very cool. And she was a big part of the reforms that happened in the, in the shelters. Yes. Yes. She was, she was a very, she was a big part of advising Churchill on the reforms and he, he accepted that they, her, her views. Yes. And so, I mean, you know, some, of the, some of the things they talked about, they just wanted people to be comfortable. So they made sure they got their tea. <laughs> well, the tea was an interesting thing. Yeah. I mean, tea, well, tea runs through the whole, whole book also because tea was, was everything. Tea was England. But one of the characters, Frederick Lindemann, Churchill's science advisor, you know, ordinarily a cold fish, but in one memorandum to Churchill, he, he, he tried to get uh, the government to reconsider a, a decrease in the amount of tea available under the rationing program. And it was a very interesting memorandum because he, he makes the point that tea is, it was crucial to the underclasses in terms of their, their only luxury and, and how important it was to maintain at least that. And, and so, so that was kind of a, a, a very warm-hearted, interesting, interesting memorandum. So you talk about one of the goals of your book is to explore what family life was like during the Blitz. And so besides managing a country during a siege, there was family drama going on. Uh, with the Churchills. And a source of that, a big source of that drama was his son, Randolph. Yeah. Tell us about Randolph Churchill. Yeah. So Randolph, Randolph Churchill was kind of a, I guess the term would be a wastrel. I mean, he's a very bright guy, very handsome guy, but he was a, a very heavy drinker and he was a, um, he was a spendthrift and uh, an inept gambler. He lost a lot of money and he was married to a young woman, Pamela Digby, Digby, who, but you know, she took his name, so it's Pamela, Pamela Digby Churchill. And 
their relationship um, was, you know, fine at first. Uh, when the action begins, they've been only married for a like, like about a year. And, you know, she, she loved him. He, he may or may not have loved her. I think he did. But he also was a philanderer. On the day that uh, she gives birth to their child, Winston Jr., he is in bed with somebody else's wife. But he, so he was, but he was a really difficult character. He was really sort of uh, outrageously outspoken, annoying, difficult character. Well, I, I think uh, Churchill once said that he loved he loves Randolph, just doesn't like him. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and I mean he was dealing with this throughout the war. He, there'd be something. Well, Randolph's got these gambling debts, and and the Pamela had to, I mean, it's to the point where Pamela stopped telling stopped telling the Churchills about the gambling debts that Church, that Randolph was accruing. So yeah, I mean at one point she you know the debts were accumulating to the point where you know they, they were really in hard straits. She, she they got a bailout at one point from Churchill, but he he said you know this better be the end of it, and that was not the end of it. So, so there's one moment where Pamela's in Harrods, the famous department store, and you know her her credit line of credit with the store was suddenly withdrawn because of excess debts by Randolph, and this was a tremendous humiliation. She flees the store and in tears, and their marriage through the book begins to wobble and degrade, and eventually to to explode. Well, we'll talk about the explosion here in a bit because it was an interesting dynamic between the Churchills and, and Pamela. But let's, let's go back to John Colville. So this is a personal secretary. He was keeping diaries during the whole entire time. He, he didn't have to, he wasn't supposed to do that. What was so captivating about his story? What do you think his story tells about that you were trying to convey? Well, the, the most important thing about John Colville is that his diary, well, there's a number of things about John Colville, but, but really his diary was the best insight into the daily functioning of, of 10 Downing Street during, during this 1940-41 period. He should not have been keeping the diary. It was essentially illegal. It was a violation of national security laws, but he kept it, kept it anyway. But the thing I felt about John Colville, I mean, I'm obviously not the first person to use that diary, not the first to re- refer to him. He makes a cameo, I believe, in the TV series The Crown. But... I felt that John Colville really needed to be sort of wanted to step forward and become a more full-bodied character in a work of history about Churchill. Nobody has done that really until till till now. And so, to me, you know, I, I wanted to know more about what his life was like. You know, what you know, it's one thing to be a secretary, private secretary in Churchill's office, but what else was going on? So at one point, I went in to take a look at his diary in the, the actual diary at the Churchill Archive Center in Cambridge. The, the, there's the published version, The Fringes of Power, which is very good, very accurate, very true to the original diary. But in that, he made a reference to the fact that the things he cut out were, were uh, he cut out trivialities, trivialities. So I was interested in those trivialities. So I set about trying to find out, well, what, what did he cut? It's very evident when you go through the through the, the two diaries, but I don't think anybody else has bothered bothered to do that, honestly. And I found that the things he cut out were certainly not trivialities at the time. He was in love. He was in love, and this is this is what this is what sort of defined his 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 emotional his emotional concerns in those days. He was in love with this young woman, Gay Margeson, and obsessed with her really. And she was not returning the favor, so. This runs through the book as well, and and you know again context to me is everything. Yeah, it's one of this again. It shows how life went on even yes, during life during went on exactly. And what I also liked about uh, Colville is at the beginning when he started working with Churchill, he wasn't really sure about him, but then 
as his relationship with Churchill progresses, he he starts to deeply admire. Yes, him. yes, and I'm important to know that Colville, pr- prior to to this, he was he was a private secretary for for Neville Chamberlain, and Neville Chamberlain was a very different kind of guy. Neville Chamberlain was um, sort of a more austere character. He his nickname was the Coroner or the Old Umbrella. And then suddenly this dynamo Churchill comes in and Colville ends up working for him and Colville really liked and was loyal to Chamberlain. And he was like, oh yeah, this is, this is going to be, no, this is, he felt this was going to be a, a, a difficult, a difficult thing to have Churchill there as prime minister. But over time he came to see the thing that the world eventually came to see, which is that Churchill was, was quite a brilliant leader in this period. He was the man for the hour. I mean, you can criticize Churchill for a lot of things. His, you know, his early 20th century sort of depredations as a, you know, a classic imperialist, you know, in, 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 in Africa and so forth. And his post-World War II, you know, actions in Kenya and India and so forth. But in this period, he was the man for, of the hour. And Colville came to recognize that. How did Churchill rely on Colville? Did you, did you, were you able to see that, that he leaned on I, Colville I, well, at all? You know, he, he, well, he leaned on all of his private secretaries because, believe me, he, without them, he could not have done what he did. These guys worked their tails off. Yeah, give him like an idea. Like They were working from like 6 o'clock, sometimes till 2 o'clock or 3 o'clock they in the morning. They worked until 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, you know. And uh, whoever was on duty was the, was the, the point man for, for, for all this. And they were, you know, they would, they would, they were, you know, helping him uh, gather memoranda, helping him, you know, the, his, his other secretaries took dictation for speeches and so forth, but Colville and the others were responsible for putting this stuff in, in shape, for getting, you know, uh, getting things published in the, in the appropriate places, for talking to other ministers. It was, uh, it, 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 these, these poor guys just, just, they had no lives. But, and, and again, Churchill could be incredibly rude. He could be, I mean, overbearing. He, he could be very, very much boorish. But he had this other side to him that was so, so, so very warm and fun. And that's, you know, these, no matter how hard these guys worked, they loved him and they would, they would not have traded that whole period for anything. No, so that was an interesting thing. So Churchill never apologized. He never, he, he, never he never said, I'm sorry, but he would do things after a blow up that would convey, I'm sorry, we're still good. He never apologized. He never apologized, but he somehow managed to communicate through whatever signal of the moment seemed appropriate that all was forgiven. Like Beaverbrook says at one point that, that when this happened with Churchill, that, that he might then, after the initial anger had subsided, he might then in, in a moment put his hand on Beaverbrook's wrist just gently. And that was the signal that all is good. You know, it's a momentary blow up. It's over. We're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors. And now back to the show. Well, let's talk about Lord Beaverbrook because this is another character. What was his role during this first year? Uh, Beaverbrook's role during this, this first year was really very important. Now, Beaverbrook and Churchill had been friends off and on throughout the years, but mostly friends. And now at this point, we're friends again. And as soon as Churchill becomes prime minister on May 10, 1940, he makes Beaverbrook his minister of aircraft production. Very important job. Beaverbrook is, is at this point, he's, he's a newspaper magnate. He publishes newspapers. He doesn't know, really know much about manufacturing you know, hard things. But uh, Churchill recognizes in him the kind of galvanizing energy that is going to be necessary to, to step up production of fighter aircraft, which 
Churchill rightly recognized from the get-go was going to be the crucial ingredient in trying to hold off any effort to invade England by Hitler. And that, that threat of invasion at this time was, was a very concrete thing. There, there were concerns that, you know, Hitler, the, the German Air Force and Army could invade the next day, you know, on any given day. That one day you'd be sitting there in Hyde Park and, and you know, a hundred paratroopers would descend, you know, around the serpentine in the park. You know, it was a very real possibility. But Churchill recognized that the way to stop that, the way to deny the Luftwaffe air superiority, which is what they would have needed if they were going to try to invade, if the Germans were to try to invade England, he recognized that fighters were the only way to do that. Did not have enough fighters. While points Beaverbrook, Minister of Aircraft Production, Beaverbrook works what amounts to sort of an act of magic over time, radically steps up production of, of Spitfires and Hurricanes. Not as radically as he would like to think, but he radically stepped up production and really sort of saved the day. At the same time, he was an irascible, potentially cantankerous, cataclysmically energetic guy, demanding, peevish, toddlerish. In the course of 1940-41, he resigns 14 times mainly to get attention from Churchill. And, but Churchill, Churchill knew him. He knew his, his man. He knew that, that, that Max, uh, and Max was his real name, Lord Beaverbrook, you know, styled uh, Lord Beaverbrook, Max Aiken was his real name. He knew that Max was going to be a problem. He knew he was going to be a problem, but that's what he wanted. He wanted him to be a problem. He wanted him to sow conflict because he wanted aircraft production um, juiced up as much as possible. And he gossiped like a church lady. Uh, he what? He was a gossip. Like he loved to gossip about what was going on. He loved to have Beaver dirt on people. Loved as I as I, I talk about in the book. He loved to collect secrets. Secrets. He, he he loved to collect other people's secrets. He liked knowing the things that were in people's closets and then manipulating those people if he, if he could. He was a real a real talent in that respect. And that that didn't hurt either. You know, in terms of well, I mean, it hurt some people, but it didn't hurt in terms of getting things done. Well, uh, this happened, like Pamela Randolph's wife eventually went to Beaverbrook for the debt problem that she was having. Well, yeah. I mean, when, when yeah. And that was when, when, when Pamela realized that the debts that she thought had been paid off by, by Churchill, but that there was actually like, were, were actually not fully paid off because there were other debts in the pipeline, which is horrifying to her. She went to Beaverbrook and told him the story and wanted to get help with with the debt and in the process sort of put herself into the the sway of his of his world in a very interesting way and in the end you know he he did help her but you know sort of the devil's bargain right randolph even told her don't ever go to beaver randolph had told her before don't ever let yourself get under 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 beaver brooks control i think to give some context too some of the things that that surprised me because whenever i think whenever i imagined you know people from a long time ago i always imagined they're like in their 30s or their 40s pamela was only 21 when this when this was going on so I couldn't imagine being 21 years old, new baby, and you've got hundreds, I mean, what today would amount to hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt. Right, 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 right. Yeah. And, and, and she was, and she was, I mean, she seemed much older than her years. She was 21, but she was, she was a very flirtatious, very easy way with people and sexually knowing person, very much sort of I, I would say coveted by 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 men and and knew what she had and was very willing to 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 
to use that to, to help her help her get away. So she was a very dynamic character. And when their marriage began to fail, which it did quite spectacularly, and once she recognized that she was on her own, she she really took very concerted steps to just carve carve her own way. And one of the ways she did that, uh, one of the people that entered into the Churchill secret circle was an American, Harriman. Yes, Avril Harriman. Av- yeah. What was his story? What was his role there? Well, so so yeah. Avril Harriman was a, was a businessman from America. He was actually the founder of Sun Valley, the resort in Idaho, mainly to... Founded that to try to get increased rail travel for his, his family railroad uh, in the wintertime. Harriman was an immensely attractive man, tall, very handsome, very, very athletic. He was sent by Roosevelt, President Roosevelt, Franklin D. Roosevelt, to London to administer the so-called Lend-Lease program after it had finally been passed, which was a long saga in itself. Nominally, his mission was to was to to determine who got what aid and how they got it and what was done with it and so forth. But really, he was he was sent by Roosevelt to kind of report on what was really happening with Churchill and with the war and to send back reports about what was really really happening. But it turns out that yes, he had that mission. But then Churchill recognized that he was Roosevelt's. Emissary, he said about really bringing him into his inner circle, like so almost like the courtship of, of a woman, brought him into his into his innermost circle to try to, you know, to try to to by 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 proxy win Roosevelt's intervention ultimately in the war. Um, he hoped that Roosevelt would intervene, and of course Pearl Harbor comes along and he does. But Harriman also was a was a you know again he was a, a very very attractive guy, and at one party he meets um, Pamela Churchill, who at this point is convinced that her has decided her marriage is done. And they, during a during an air raid, they go down to his his apartment, which is deemed to be safer. It's in this hotel called the Dorchester, and one thing leads to another, and dot dot dot. <laughs> and did Churchill? Did the Churchills know about it? The affair? Yeah, you know, I, I believe the Churchills did know about it. Not immediately, but they did know about it. Um, I don't think anybody really seriously doubts that that they did, but they did not make a big thing about the affair. When later, later Randolph got really annoyed when he found out about the affair that, that his parents had been sort of, you know, wittingly supporting a cuckold in the, in the cuckolding him in, in the, in the, in the Churchill family. So. Do you think he, I mean, was, do you think there's anything to what Randolph accused him? Like the Churchill kind of used Pamela as a, as a political, you know, connection or. Oh, I'm sure he did once he realized that, I mean, he was, he was very, very good at, at this courtship of America. I mean, it's like a, like a, like, like an ace fly fisherman using every single technique he could to just sort of reel Roosevelt closer and closer and closer. And when he found out, and I, I have no doubt that he found out that Pamela and, and Harriman were having an affair. I'm sure he was delighted. You know, this is like all in the family, you know, especially now. Well, I think Churchill was used to that sort of thing. I mean, his mother was, how would you say, she got, I mean, she was, she did that. She was unfaithful. She was known as a, I don't know, courtesan, I mean, basically. Yeah, well, basically in this time, everybody was unfaithful. I mean, that's one of the things that comes through in my, in my work. Actually, it almost doesn't matter what era I'm looking at. Um, there's a lot more sex going on than you would ever imagine. 
Right. And so the sort of the happy ending with that, I mean, if you can call it a happy, I mean, it's a, kind of a happy ending with Pamela and Harriman. They eventually, they, they go their separate ways. They stay married to their respective Spouse, spouses. Yeah. But then- Well, she, she eventually divorces Yeah, Randall, she divorces fairly, Randolph. Fairly early on. But year, decades later, yeah. they end up getting married. Yeah. Well, that's, that's true. That's, that was, that's very sort of, it's kind of a romantic story. Romantic also in the, in the sense that, that Harriman did stay with his wife, despite the revelation of this affair. And, and they actually grew closer and closer over the years. And when his wife died, you know, decades after, after the war, uh, Harriman was, was absolutely crushed. And at one point, though, he is invited to a party at uh, Catherine Graham's house, the, uh, you know, the, the owner of the Washington Post, reconnects with Pamela. And the next thing you know, they're, they're married. This, this long saga has you know, come full circle in their, their, their husband and wife. So you mentioned uh, Mary. Yeah. Mary Churchill was your favorite character. Why was she your favorite character? Mary was my favorite character because, well, first of all, she's brand new in terms of Churchill scholarship. I, I, when I was granted, thankfully, permission to look at her diary by her daughter, I was one of two scholars who had been given that opportunity. I don't know who the other scholar was, but... Mary has not been, you know, heavily written about in any work on Churchill until until now. And what I really liked about her was that, you know, she was again context. She was this very charming, smart, pretty, very intelligent seventeen-year-old who whose life followed a very interesting arc. In this time, she was a, she she was a very compelling counterpoint to what was going on in the world. Like she she loved her father, and she commented on on the action day by day in in, in her own daily in his daily diary. And it was really a really a, a, a wonderful insight, not just into what was actually happening on the broader world stage, but also what was happening in her life. The context snogging in the hayloft with the RAF pilots, you know, that kind of thing. And, and uh, the, the RAF pilots at a nearby base, bomber pilots, you know, these are young guys in their 20s, you know, 19, 20, 21, 22. They knew Mary was at Checkers, the prime ministerial estate in the country outside London. They knew Mary was there. They knew her friends were there. And they would engage in a process that she refers to repeatedly in her diary as beating up which is when the bombers would fly over at treetop level and just buzz the girls. They were thrilled. They loved this. And I mean, as you read her diaries, life went on for her too. She was, she got proposed to, and she had to, you'd see the agony of like whether to accept or not. And the, the tension between her and her mother about whether to accept or not. No, I mean, this, so I mean, she, she, she follows a very, uh, a very interesting arc through, through a book. I mean, I don't want to necessarily give away exactly what happens, but suffice it to say that, you know, one reason see, I, I, this book ha, this book takes place in that first year of his prime minister ministership premiership May 10, 1940 to May 10, 1941. But it was not that year per se that drew me. This is not a book about the first year of the prime minister. This is a book that I did because the action happens to match conveniently that first year. On May 10, 1941, three different narrative threads all converge and end on that day, which almost never happens in the world of you know, historical writing. And one of those was, was her particular saga. Right. And what, I, what I find interesting about Mary, when I've read about her, it seems like out of all the Churchill children, she was the most well-adjusted. She didn't have like the personal drama like a Randolph or even her older, I think she had an older sister as well. Yes. She, yeah. She had two sisters, Diana and Sarah. What do you think went on there? Like, why did the other Churchills 
children kind of end up have all these personal problems and Mary didn't. I don't know. I mean, you know, I didn't spend a lot of time obviously thinking about looking into the the other the other sisters. I wanted to focus on a, a few Im- important characters. But, you know, I mean, three, <laughs> three, four, five times a charm. I mean, you know, she was the youngest and and uh, and was doted upon by her parents. And I don't know, maybe that's part of it. So you mentioned Checkers. That was the the prime minister like a state out in the country outside of London. And that seemed to play a pivotal role. I mean, that's where Churchill would convene his inner circle. Yes. And not only, con- I mean, they continued to work there, but they also blew off steam there. What were some of the stories that were one of, you know, a few of your favorite stories from Checkers that you really showed, that really conveyed that inner circle? <clears throat> so Checkers really did become kind of a character in the book. I was fascinated by Checkers, fascinated by how Churchill used it. Checkers was this, lovely old house on some sprawling grounds outside London that had been donated to the government by a very generous guy. And the rule for the house was supposed to be that prime ministers were not supposed to do any work there. It's supposed to be a place where you just recharge mentally, psychically, the idea being that maybe the house would help improve the governorship, government of uh, the governing of, of Britain. And then Churchill comes along, and Churchill is like, he's not going to not work. He's, he lived for work, you know? So, so every weekend, this place is filled with guests. And I think my favorite story about Checkers is when one night, you know, he had these dinner parties for all these dignitaries and people from abroad and whatever. And there was a lot of booze and a lot of, a lot of fun. And uh, after one of these, uh, Churchill in the Great Hall at Checkers, he puts on the gramophone to play military music. And then he proceeds to begin doing a series of, very seriously for him, bayonet drills using his Malika rifle with a bayonet attached to the end. But the thing is, he's wearing at this point his pale blue siren suit, which honestly makes him look like a pale blue Easter egg. You know, and the siren suit was this one-piece jumpsuit he had designed so that it could be pulled on at a moment's notice. So he's wearing that, but he's also wearing his gold dragon silk dressing gown. So here he is at Checkers with this rifle, pursuing these these bayonet drills, you know, on the on the on the great hall of of Checkers with all his guests gathered around, just in hysterics, you know, because here's the Prime Minister of England doing this thing in this purple, in this bl- light blue, in this light blue jumpsuit, you know, it was tremendous. I love the stories. I mean, I think you mentioned at one point you said that Churchill, Churchill never stopped being a boy. Churchill, there's, I, I, yeah, I really feel that like he never stopped being a boy and that was part of his charm, part of what made his private secretaries tolerate that sort of intense work schedule. So another thing you do throughout the book, you make these cuts to German leaders and their sort of their thought process during this. What were you hoping to convey with those cuts? I thought it was very important to get the German input because if, because it's important to know what they were thinking about as all this unfolded, because the British, as you know, Luftwaffe began attacking, first attacking in sort of in a way that really sort of mystified the RAF. The British were having trouble understanding exactly what the Luftwaffe was trying to do, and I felt it was important then to understand what the Luftwaffe was trying to do, not just as a way of saying, okay, this is this is how they saw it, this is what they were actually. This is what Hermann Goering, head of the Luftwaffe, was actually trying to trying to do at this point. But it was important also to, in terms of suspense, because 
Because if you know that they're planning, okay, the next giant raid on, on a city in, in, in England, and you know, of course, that the British don't know or maybe have a sense that something's coming through their intelligence network, um, that's suspense. That's suspense. You want to find out what happens. You know, you, you know this is going to happen because the Germans are, are talking about it. The British don't. And, and you know, that's, that's one of the essences of, of crafting suspense. I also liked how you conveyed... I mean, sometimes like the surprise by the Germans about how defiant the British were. They just thought that they would just roll over. Yep. But they yep. never did. And they were always, they were in there, they're trying to figure out how to spin this yep. constantly. The, the Germans really did think that the, that the British would, would cave after this, this, this punishing aerial attack. They were stunned each time that, that Churchill would not give in. And Churchill did not give in. Churchill, Churchill just grew more and more defiant which in turn annoyed the Germans no end, especially Hitler. And it was ultimately his you know, in, in, intransigent defiance that led Hitler to finally approve the bombing of, uh, of central London, the bombing of civilian parts of cities, which Hitler previously had, had banned. He, he had explicitly said, you cannot, to, to Hermann Goering, you cannot bomb London, you cannot bomb central London, because Churchill, because Hitler did not, want to so galvanize the, the, the British people and, and Churchill that they would not consider coming to the peace table. And Churchill was you know, absolutely defiant. There's no way he was going to do that, right? And so one thing leads to another. And then Churchill, Hitler finally says, finally authorizes attacks on London and, and massive attacks on London. You know? And now the strategy has changed to try to bring Churchill to the peace table by just sheer brutality. You know? And once again, it fails, but, but this is what was now happening. And I mean, that's what eventually led to the Dresden bombings too. Like, well, you know, tit for tat, tit for tat. I mean, right. you know, what preceded the September 7, 1940, the first deliberate raid on central London, the first, the, the, the night that is typically credited as being the start of the Blitz, what preceded that was a raid on August 24th, 1940, when bombs did fall on central London. Nobody in London understood at that point, though, that this was an accident, that this was from a, for lack of a better, I mean, you, I don't want to use the German terminology, a German bomber squadron had gotten lost and had dropped bombs on central London. This was a jarring, shocking thing, incredibly shocking, but it also gave... Churchill, moral justification, now start bombing Berlin. That was what he decided, you know, that he, that's what he wanted to do. He was waiting for moral justification to do that. Then comes, you know, September 7, 1940, and this tit-for-tat, you know, bombing raids, you know, Luftwaffe against British cities, um, RAF against German cities, you know, just be, continues to intensify it through the war until... Yes, the, the major campaigns against German cities like Dresden and so forth, that order of magnitude worse actually than the, what the Luftwaffe did to London. And there's some other great stories from out of the German side that, I mean, that's what I love about this story because there's so many different little stories in them. One of them, my favorite, and I'm not going to talk about it too much, but it's like this renegade Nazi officer <laughs> who yeah. goes rogue to try to, to, to broker a piece, right, right. which is a lot of fun. I mean, what do you hope readers walk away with after they finish this book? Like, what do you want them to? You know, my feeling is, my goal always with my books, first of all, is to, to invite readers to sink deeply into the past and, and experience it as if, as if almost they were there, to try to have a visceral experience and maybe emerge from the book later feeling 
like maybe they have a better appreciation of history or even feeling somewhat, somewhat changed. But I think also, I didn't intend this really at the beginning. I mean, I started this book about five conception, maybe five years ago, four and a half years ago. But really, I, I think what the book provides is yeah, kind of a kind of a refuge for people who it, it's a, it, it. I think it reminds people of what real leadership looked like at a time when that reminder is very handy, you know, because we don't have a lot of it right now. So I think that that's that's what the book I think could serve as a could be valuable for people. And one thing I took away from this, and I don't know if this was in, uh, one of your intentions, but that maybe I'm capable of doing what they did too. Right, like going even in this in the face of adversity like that, we can con- still continue to build a build a life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, there is that, of course. I mean, the, the idea that you know, I, I always think of Churchill as having taught people the art of being fearless, and I do feel that in some ways, uh, not not courage per se, but fearlessness of being able to venture into a situation that is everything tells you is not the situation you should be venturing into, you know, and, and to venture in there without fear. I do feel that that can be, it's kind of a learned experience, you know, I mean, and, and you learn by observing others. And one of the things that Churchill was very, very good at, he understood the power of symbolic acts. He understood the power of visiting bombed out neighborhoods. He understood the power of, instead of cowering in a shelter when an air raid happened, he more often than not would climb to the nearest roof and watch that air raid, you know, and and it, and it became known, of course, that he did that. So, you know, the the art of of fearlessness can can I think I, I think can be taught. And when you're in your in your darkest hours, and you think about how these guys got through this whole thing and how they did it, yeah, I think that that can help you too. Well, Eric, is there some place people can go to learn more about the book and your work? You got a website? Yeah, um, yeah, I have a website, ericlarsonbooks.com, and I've neglected it badly for the last three weeks of book touring, but that's going to change, so that's that's good. But more than anything, I just say, yeah, read it. <laughs> Fantastic. We'll put a link to it on the show notes. Eric Larson, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Uh, thank you very much. It was I very much enjoyed it. My guest today was Eric Larson. He's the author of the book, The Splendid and the Vile. It's available on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find out more information about it, the book and his work at ericlarsonbooks.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash Larson. We can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you can find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles we've written over the years about pretty much anything. We've got a whole series about Winston Churchill on there. Go check it out. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. If you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member if you think you get something out of it. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLINESS at checkout. You get a free month trial Stitcher Premium. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android or iOS, and you start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AWIN Podcast. As always, thank you for your continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay, reminding you not only listen to the AWIN Podcast, but put what you've heard into action. <laughs>